Coming up on this week's show, Brent Hartinger joins us to talk about his latest book, his latest movie project, and what it's like being a digital nomad. This is the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for avid readers and passionate fans of gay romance fiction. Each week, we bring you exclusive author interviews, book recommendations, and explore the latest in gay pop culture. Welcome to episode 227 of the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from jeffadamsrights.com, and with me as always is my co-host and husband, Will Knaus. Welcome back, everybody. This episode of the podcast is brought to you in part by our remarkable community on Patreon. A big thanks to Giselle for joining us and Terry Beth for upping their pledge. We'll have more information on how you can join the community at the end of this show, along with a sneak peek of what we have coming next week. So, another week, another show. Let's jump right into it, Jeff. What have you been up to this week? I have been doing edits. We haven't talked much on this show about a new book that I'm working on, but I do have a new hockey romance coming in April, and I have been going through the edits alongside my editor and have been moving along pretty well on that. I'm, I'm happy with how it's going so far. Good to hear. Yeah. There was sad news this week. We were very sad that the Top to Bottom podcast has gone on to a bit of a hiatus. Marky and Jess announced that they were putting the podcast essentially on hold because... You know, life sometimes comes up, and we understand how that goes. We do wish them well and hope they come back to the podcast sphere. They were a a wonderful show. They covered books that, you know, were a little outside of what we normally do, and they will certainly be missed out here in, in the MM Romance podcast universe. All of their podcast episodes do live on, so if you want to check out what they were doing or check any of their back episodes, we'll have the link to that in the show notes for you. Yes, definitely check that out if you haven't already. And now it's time for Romance Revisited, our look at some of the gay romances that have recently been re-released. Remember, if you haven't read it yet, then it is new to you. What have you got for us this week? First, we'd like to kick things off with the re-release of Mystic Man by E.J. Russell. When risk-averse research librarian Aaron Templeton has to apply for a job on the other side of the country, no one is more surprised than he is. He nearly runs home before the final interview, except for one little problem. He has no home anymore. He put his condo on the market before he left California, and it's already sold. Only an encounter with a free-spirited Connecticut native at the Mystic Seaport Museum staves off Aaron incipient panic attack. Cody loves nothing better than introducing newcomers to the great features of his beloved home state. And when the newbie in question is a rumpled professor type with the saddest blue eyes on the planet, well, score. The attraction between the two men deepens as they explore Cody's favorite spots. But when difficulties arise and Aaron's insecurities threaten to overwhelm him, will Cody's love be enough to keep him in Mystic? And that's Mystic Man by E.J. Russell, available once again. Next up, I want to talk about Sky Full of Mysteries by Rick Reed. What if your first love was abducted and presumed dead, but then returned 20 years later? That's the dilemma Cole Weston faces. Now happily married to Tommy, he's suddenly thrown into a surreal world where his first love Rory unexpectedly reappears. Rory has no memory of those years. For him, it's as though only a day or two has passed. He still loves Cole with a passion unique to young first love. But Cole has so many questions. Where has Rory been and what happened to him two decades ago when he disappeared without a trace? He's never forgotten Rory, but Tommy has been his rock, by his side, 
since Rory disappeared. Cole is forced to choose between an idealized and passionate first love and the comfort of a long-term marriage. How does one make a decision like that? The answer might lie among the stars. Next on our list of re-releases is Sunset at Pencaro by Lou Silver and Anne Barwell. In the last year, Nate's lost his longtime lover to boredom and his tenure job to the economy. Now he's found a golden opportunity for employment where he can even use his artistic talent. But to get the job, he has to get to Christchurch today. Heavy fog means no flight, and the ticket agent is ignoring him to fawn over a beautiful but annoying, overly polite American man. Rusty can deal with a canceled flight, but the pushy kiwi at the ticket counter is making it difficult for him to stay cool. The guy rubs him all the wrong ways despite his sexy working man look. Yet when they're forced to share a table at a crowded airport cafe, Nate reveals the kind heart behind the grumpy facade. An earthquake, sex in the bush, and visits from Nate's belligerent ex turn a day of sightseeing into a slippery slope that just might land them in love. If you'd like to browse this week's complete list of re-release titles, head on over to the show notes page for episode 227 at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. In the hockey player's heart, the feel-good gay romance by Jeff Adams and Will Knauss, hockey star Caleb Carter returns to his hometown to recover from an injury. He never expects to run into his one-time crush at a grade school fundraiser. Seeing Aaron Price hits him hard, like being checked into the boards. The attraction is still there, even after all these years, and Caleb decides to make a play for the school teacher. You miss 100% of the shots you never take, right? Aaron has been burned by love before, and can't imagine what a celebrity like Caleb could possibly see in a guy like him. Their differences are just too great. But as Aaron spends more time with Caleb, he begins to wonder if he might have what it takes to win the hockey player's heart. Get the hockey player's heart at Amazon.com. It is Valentine's week, so I decided to get in the spirit of the holiday and read a Valentine-themed story. And I picked Candy Hearts by Erin McKellen. It was the perfect choice for its fun, flirty, sexy, sweet, heartfelt romance. Benji Holiday's a mechanic who is done with romance, done with dating, and very much done with Valentine's Day. Uh, and especially because he's just getting over a cheating boyfriend. Even though he doesn't want anything to do with the holiday, he begrudgingly accepts an invitation from his sister to join a few of her friends for what's supposed to be a chill house party that weekend at a lake house. When Benji arrives, he discovers that the start of the festivities have been postponed by a day due to a power outage. Nobody told Benji about this, though, so he's turned up and, and no one else is there, except the house owner, William O'Dare. He's a workaholic who's also trying to avoid the holiday, but at the same time, he wants to reconnect with his friends that he hasn't seen in way too long. He invites Benji to stay since he's already there. These two are immediately attracted to each other and sizing each other up. One of my favorite sentences in this entire story is from Benji's point of view as he meets William. His tortoise shell glasses made him look like a stern librarian wet dream. That just paints the perfect picture of William. Now, Benji's very into this slightly older man. And for William, the fact that Benji has declared that he could keep himself occupied alone in his room jerking off and eating Valentine's candy, and then a few beats later reveals that one of his bags has sex toys and lingerie, has left William kind of reeling in the wake of that information. 
the inner dialogues these guys have about each other is so ridiculously charming and sexy. Benji and William give in to their attraction immediately because, you know, why not? They're in an empty house. It's dark. There's, you know, there's no power. There's not much to do to entertain each other. So why not go have sex? And William soon finds that under Benji's overalls, which he already finds crazy sexy, Benji's wearing a baby pink harness and a lacy jockstrap. Now, while Benji mentioned he had the lingerie with him, Benji hadn't exactly planned on revealing it in that moment or that he was wearing it. But he went with it because one of the things he's working on is not changing himself to suit anyone else. William finds it hot, not just the clothing, but Benji's power in wearing it. They decide to spend the weekend exploring each other, being secret boyfriends and valentines even once the other partygoers arrive. Of course, neither of them expects to fall for the other. Benji has sworn off relationships, and while William is looking for one, and he's even made a list of traits he thought he wanted, he hasn't thought that the perfect guy would actually land on his doorstep. By the time people arrive for the party, it's beyond difficult for Benji and William to hide their feelings, and they fool no one, even as their guests allow them to continue the charade for a while. Now, what makes this book soar is how Benji and William reveal aspects of themselves. It starts bold with Benji's openness about why he likes lingerie and continues from there with what's going wrong in their relationships, what they want to fix in their lives, and it really delves into the core of who they are. Most of these revelations, especially some of the early ones, happen around their sexy times. I'll admit, I often get bored with the sex in books unless it is truly driving the story, and Aaron uses every sexy time to get Benji and William to share more with each other. To make all this sweeter... They use these revelations to point the way towards the people that they'd like to become. For example, Benji is really trying to nudge William out of his workaholic condition, and William is helping Benji be even more his authentic self. Not only do these guys find love, but they end up on a path to truly better lives beyond the relationship they've created. Also satisfying here is the dark moment. Aaron's presented very smart obstacles to the relationship, and I love what Benji and William went through to get to their happy. As a reader, I loved how this part of the story played out. This is my third book of Aaron's, and I think it's my favorite. Benji and William are so ridiculously awesome, slightly quirky, and extremely sexy, but also so very sweet. These two guys needed each other, and as a reader, I rooted for them so, so hard. I highly recommend Candy Hearts, whether you read it for Valentine's Week or any other time of the year. Did you know that podcasts love to get reviews too? Taking a moment to leave a review about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast helps us with the show's visibility online. Please take a moment to visit iTunes and leave a review. Your comments help other readers of gay romance discover this show. Thanks for helping us spread the word about the Big Gay Fiction Podcast. So this week I got to talk to Brent Hartinger and I love talking to Brent and we kind of had a little show anniversary here. He was on the show back in episode 70 and it turns out that that is almost exactly three years ago because that episode dropped on February 6, 2017 and here we are February 10th, 2020 having him on the show again. It was a wide ranging uh, number of topics between the latest book that he's released in the Otto Digmore series, a new movie that he has recently wrapped production on that'll hopefully be coming out later this year, as well as his life as a digital nomad alongside his husband. So we've got a lot of stuff to listen to there, and we think you're going to find this interview quite interesting. 
Brent, welcome back to the show. It is so good to have you here. It's been, I think, two years or more since you were here last. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be back. I love that you are revisiting once again the world of Russell Middlebrook, uh, focusing again on his friend Otto. You've got a brand new book in the Otto Digmore series out. Tell us all about that. So for people who may not be familiar with me or these particular books, back in 2003, I wrote a book called Geography Club, which was one of the first gay teen books that sort of broke out on a mainstream way. I published a series of sequels. Eventually, I started self-publishing these books. So by the fourth book, I was self-publishing. Those first four books became a young adult series, the Russell Middlebrook series. Then this was sort of coinciding with the golden age of self-publishing. I decided to launch a new series about Russell in his 20s. So he had started out as a teenager in a young adult series, and then he grew up and he became new adult. And I kind of think I still might be the only author to have done this about his own character. I have had a character grow up and switch genres from young adult to new adult. And I wrote three books. That was called Russell Middlebrook, The Futon Years. And then... One of the characters that I'd always really, really liked named Otto Digmore, who was, he was a burn survivor. When he was a child, he was in an, a, a, an accident with some fire and he burned half of his face. And I liked him. He was sort of a love and interest for Russell back when Russell was a teenager. And then in the newer books, Russell moves to Los Angeles, to Hollywood to try to make it as a screenwriter. And Otto, meanwhile, who is now also in his early 20s, is trying to make it as an actor, despite the fact that he, that he has this scar on half his face. And I thought, my God, audiences like this character. I really liked this character. It seemed really timely, the whole normalization of minorities that are trying to get into the mainstream. You know, here's this actor, he considers himself disabled, and he's trying to make it in Hollywood, but Hollywood isn't really ready, they don't know what to do with him, plus there's a lot of prejudice and bigotry. And I, So I launched another series about Otto Digmore, about his struggles trying to make it as an actor in Hollywood. The first book was called The Otto Digmore Difference, and that was sort of a road trip that Russell, who is a supporting character in these books, Russell and Otto go on a road trip so that Otto can get this movie role, and then, you know, complications ensue. And then this latest book, which is called The Otto Digmore Decision, Russell, who is a screenwriter now, finally has a movie being produced and he maneuvers an audition. He writes the role for Otto and gets Otto an audition and, and Otto gets the part. So finally, you know, Russell and Otto are getting their happy ending, or are they? Because in this book, it turns out the director is sort of a jackass and he's kind of ruining... The movie, it's a, the movie is a medieval heist. It's about a heist taking place. You know, they're trying to steal the gold from a king and the characters are, you know, ragtag team of, of characters and, and Otto's playing the thief, one of the thieves. Um, anyway, so then they have to figure out how are we going to save this movie without the director knowing about it. So it's sort of a comedy of errors. I am also a screenwriter, as you know, and it is I wouldn't say it's directly based on my experience as a screenwriter, but it's based on my observations. And so it's it's a comedy. It's a it's it's a comedy of errors about the craziness of Hollywood. And it's also like the first book. I like to say that it's it's a love story between two friends. You know, it's not really a classic romance romance, but Russell and Otto are best friends and they do anything for each other. And it's no longer romantic at, at this point, or at least not really romantic. I, I loved writing this character. He may be my favorite character to have ever written. I feel like there's nothing else like him. There wasn't anything like him in gay YA. 
and there isn't anything in gay fiction. It seems to me uh, nothing exactly like this. And then it's also fun to be able to write to sort of put some of my frustrations with Hollywood on paper and explore. I think everybody's interested in Hollywood. Everyone's interested in movie making. And I can kind of go behind the scenes and talk about it. So it's a great experience. And, and it's been out. The book has been out for a couple of weeks now. And people seem to like it. I am always touched every time somebody likes my books. And every time ever, somebody is moved by one of my books. That's awesome. And it does make it worthwhile. You've written these characters now for 10 books, the Russell Biddlebrook universe. If I did the fast math right, I think it's 10 books now. Yes, I think you're right. Uh, nine, 10 if you include a short story. Yeah. And they're still extremely fresh. And one of the things that I like about the series so well is this friendship between Otto and Russell. Cause you see them evolve so much through the books. And that's something that you don't tend to get in a lot of series. You may see everybody as a little tangential thing, but these two are so tight. What's it like to write characters across so many books, for one thing, where they are always the primaries? And of course, you've mixed it up between Otto being a primary and Russell being a primary between the series, but still, they're they're front and center in each other's books. And what's that like for you as an author in terms of like keeping things fresh and then getting to revisit these characters every so often? Well, first of all, thank you. I appreciate that. That's really nice to hear. And it has been artistically extremely satisfying. But I'll tell you, at the beginning of this project, the vow I made to myself was, I'm not going to repeat myself. If I don't have a new story to tell, I'm not going to, I'm not just going to do these for the money. I'm going to do these because I feel like I have something to say. So for better or for worse, every book has been a radically different story. And then the, when you look at the three individual series, they all have a, a different sensibility. The Elephant of Surprise was about this group called Freegans who, who they dumpster dive and they don't believe in buying things. And so they've got this community of barter and, you know, eating roadkill and eating from dumpsters. And I was fascinated by this phenomenon. And so I wrote this book where Russell befriends one of these and sort of learns their philosophy and has an adventure. And a lot of people didn't like that. I thought it was so interesting. I had a ball researching that and writing that book. And I don't really care that some significant people said that about Otto too. They said, Oh, I don't want to read about a character who has a scar on his face. Well, I don't care that, you know, don't read my books then that's, this is what excited me at the time and excites me now. One of the interesting things I was able to do because they are self-published and the lead time between writing and publication is so quick with this particular book, I wrote it in the first half of this year and I actually could have, it is, you could release them even faster, but I, you know, I very rigorous in my, editing and then these also have audible editions and we wanted them to come out at the same time. So I had to basically finish the book and then set it aside for three months while the audio was, was recorded and all of that. But, but even so, I'm able to write these books in real time. So I'm commenting on things that are happening to me as I'm writing them. And for example, you know, Russell and Otto are lamenting the injustice of Hollywood, how it feels like the insiders get all the breaks and the rules only apply to the people on the outside. And at the time that I'm writing this, the whole call it admission scandal with Felicity Huffman and all these celebrities are getting their kids in college by paying SAT tutors and all the rest. I made one, I'm able to incorporate this. It's like 
this is going on, you know, they're talking about this as it's happening, as the news is breaking in the book, and they can comment on real world events. It's sort of a subplot about Trump, what's going on with Trump and Russell's feeling of, of ennui and alienation. That's part of this book. And there's an ongoing debate. Should authors be timely or should they be timeless? And should you, should you quote music or TV shows? Because they, it can make a book seem so dated so quickly. And, you're, you know, we're all going for timeless. We obviously, we write our book, you know, three years, if it's traditionally, three years before it's published and if it's self-published, six months. But we want it to sell for years after that. I mean, we don't want it to feel, you know, when I read a book that uses the word groovy, I know that it was written in 1971. And it, but with these books, I'm embracing that. And they're sort of snapshots in time, and which I think makes them interesting. I mean, with the first uh, Foutineers book, which I wrote in 2014, well, Prep had just come out, maybe 2013. And so Russell is single at the time, and all, all of these guys are, you know, the, I, I can talk about the whole barebacking phenomenon, and, and Russell, and, and one guy's on Preps. I thought it was really relevant, and people who were struggling with all these issues can read about them. But now, the book is like a snapshot in that particular moment in time when this concept was introduced and this single gay guy who is sexually active is negotiating and trying to figure out what's right for him. Mm -hmm. And I, I feel like this is another thing that I don't, think, I don't think a lot of writers have been able to do, at least not a, unless you're self-publishing, you, you don't have the luxury to do this. And for me, it's made the whole project even more interesting. With the auto books in particular, you you really get to poke around in Hollywood, and mm. as you mentioned, you know, and we'll talk about one of these in in just a minute, one of your movie projects. How much of that influences what goes on with Otto and with Russell and the frustrations <laughs> that they have? How autobiographical is this? <laughs> well, the frustrations are very, 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 very autobiographical. Some of the successes are pure wish fulfillment, you know, like yeah. Um, getting a, a $45 million movie produced, thats that has not happened to me yet. I wish it had. But I do think, I mean, I'm fascinated with writing, and I, I mean, I think, I like books, but for me, screenplays are such a pure medium. It's just, I mean, I'm fascinated with story. I always have been. I'm fascinated with plot, perfectly constructed plot. And screenplays, because you, you know, you have such a short amount of time to tell your story, they have to be so economical. So I've I'm fascinated by Hollywood. I'm fascinated by movies. I totally geek out on movies. I like TV too. But so it's been great to be able to take my experience and I hopefully make it very commercial, make it accessible to people who are not in the industry, but also give them I mean, things are exaggerated, but they're not exaggerated that much. You know, I mean, I, at one point Otto is in Hollywood before Russell and Russell arrives and, and Otto is explaining how important it is the way you look, you know, that the, and you are judged by the, the shoes you wear. Well, that's based on a conversation I had with somebody in Hollywood. It's like, you can't wear those shoes to a pitch meeting because everybody dresses very casual in Hollywood except for the shoes and the shoes can be casual too, but they're going to be, you know, $1,200 and the shoes are the way you signal to people that you're not an amateur, you know, that you have money, that you're a player. And I find that kind of thing, I mean, I th it's, it's so tribal, you know, it's so, it's so specific to the industry. But then, you know, at one point, Russell understands that the same standards are not applied to writers as they are to actors because everybody assumes writers 
have no fashion sense and they're all poor and they're all sort of pathetic dorks and losers anyway. So the rules that apply to actors don't necessarily apply to, to, uh, to writers and that there are other rules that apply to writers. And, and like I said, I'm fascinated by all this stuff just on a sociological level. I just, it interests me. And I think, I hope other people are too. So often what I see on TV and in movies and even in other books when it comes to the publishing industry or when it comes to Hollywood, it's just sheer fantasy. You know, like the TV show Younger, which is actually a good show, but they'll like acquire a book and then a month later the book is released. And it's like, mm-hmm. no, that's, I mean, it's it's offensive to me. They're not even trying to give it any semblance. Like I said, I am exaggerating things. I'm exaggerating the character, but I'm more interested in the in the emotional truth to it all and the actual nuts and bolts of it. Do you think Otto's going to become a trilogy? Otto is definitely not a trilogy. The, the series is over. It's a two book series and it is possible there will be, well, I don't want to, I, I did leave it open ended to start a new series, which is related to my life again, you know, that it could be, I'm a digital nomad. I sold my house. My husband and I sold our house three years ago and we've been traveling the world ever since. And it could be, I will not make any promises, but it could be that if I, if I start another series, that'll be the next phase in Russell and Otto's lives, that maybe, maybe they will do something similar. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about film. You've got a movie that has at least wrapped photography called Project Payday, which is based on one of your books called Project Sweet Life. Start Correct. us off with a little bit about what this book was about. Project Project Payday, I'm just going to refer to it as as the current title because otherwise it confuses people. Project Payday is three 15-year-olds are told by their parents that they have to get summer jobs. They reject that because they had been thinking that 15 is the year of the optional summer job and they were just going to hang out together. It was their last summer of freedom. But instead, their parents are saying, you have to get a job. So they invent fake jobs. And then they embark on a series of get-rich-quick schemes to make the money that they need to show to their parents to, to convince them that they actually have real jobs. So it is a caper, comedy of errors, caper sort of farce thing. Uh, honestly, it, it does have a more, I mean, it's a, it's a comic. It was a comic book. It's a comic movie. They get involved in a local adventure. And, and of course, every scheme that they try is a debacle. And they end up working much harder than if they'd just gotten jobs in the first place. And, but of course... You know, they're also looking for a local treasure to solve a mystery. I wrote it before Stranger Things, but it has sort of a retro vibe, you know, kids on their bikes in the the summer. Um, It's very, very much. And in fact, in fact, the movie is full of nods to both Stranger Things and The Goonies, which is the other movie that was sort of inspired by, even though I don't particularly like that movie. I like that sensibility. And I, I actually, I'm trying to capture a serious moment in the sense that I get frustrated both in movies and in books. It feels like books and movies for teens today either skew young, they're either for kid kids, you know, like middle grade, and they're they're innocent, or they're edgy. And they're, you know, about kids having sex and kids being cool and kids, you know, they're like book smart. And there's sex comedies. And there's not a lot for that middle ground, like the 14, 15-year-old, And I actually think that's a really interesting age because when I was that age, I distinctly remember I wanted to grow older. I wanted to be an adult. I wanted to be able to drive. But I knew 
that I was going to have to give something up. I was gonna have to give up that freedom and that innocence that comes from being a kid where you have no responsibility and three full months of freedom, you don't have a job, you don't, and nobody cares. I wanted to capture that moment of being old enough to know you're no longer innocence and in it, your childhood is slipping away and appreciating it. Mm -hmm. on that last year before, you know, then you do become an adult and then you do have to deal with, you know, sex and money and all these other, I mean, I, I, I'm over oversimplifying things a little bit, but I do think I, that's, that's what I was trying to capture. That sort of, that like the last year, you know, you can't, you're too old for trick or treating and now you have to give the candy away. It's not the same thing, you know, and there's a sadness. And on the other hand, you know, you get to hang out, you got to go to the Halloween party and stay out till 2 a.m. As you can tell, I'm drawn to write things that are not, that nobody else is writing. And I don't, that was like something I didn't see. Well, anyway, so I wrote the book. I wrote the book back in 2007 and it was an, it was an orphaned book, which means my editor, the acquiring editor had, had left or been fired, I can't remember which, by the time it was actually released. So this is never a good thing. So. The book is given to another editor, but they don't necessarily care. And I was sort of at the end of my career at HarperCollins at the time anyway. I don't think they really cared. The book sort of came out. It actually sold okay, which is surprising because they didn't do a damn thing. I mean, nobody, like I said, it didn't really have an in-cast advocate. But I thought it was a really cinematic idea, especially with nods to the Goonies and then, you know, Stranger Things hit, which really, Stranger Things has exactly the same sensibility, except it's a slightly different genre. And I thought, this would make a good movie. And yet, unlike Geography Club, say, or some of my earlier books, it had received no interest, you know. It, 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 even though it had, like I said, it had sold okay, but it hadn't made any real ripple in the industry. And, and so it hadn't gotten any inquiries. And I thought, well, I'll write the screenplay myself. And I did. And I, you know, honed it for a couple of years. And then I pitched it. And this producer came to me and he didn't even know, I didn't pitch it as a book. I pitched it as a screenplay. I didn't tell anybody that it had been a book because I, I didn't feel like that really served me. I mean, the book had not been particularly successful. There's a huge prejudice in Hollywood about novelists adapting their own work or novelists writing screenplays. The people think correctly that they're two completely different mediums and that if you write novels, you don't know how to write a screenplay. So I didn't want to, I didn't want to complicate the pitch by saying, oh, I'm a novelist and this is based on my novels. The, the producer liked it and he said, even though this hadn't been part of my pitch, he said, I really like that you're, you're targeting this market in between the middle grade and the edgy young adult. This is exactly the movie that I'm looking for. And I, and I knew when he said that, I said, okay, well, this is a match made in heaven, that he was looking to produce a movie because he had seen the same void in the marketplace that I had seen, you know, 10 years before, eight years before when I was writing the book. And that's the movie he wanted to produce. And so that's what we did. That's what he did. And then we, so we revised that for, you know, he was, how long did, how long was the development process? Four years from the beginning of an option to production, four years, that's pretty fast. You know, he's raising the financing while we're developing the script. And then we shot, it's set in my hometown. It's sort of, it has a racism element, and it's set in my hometown of Tacoma, Washington, but it was, we, we, we had to change it into sort of a, any town, and it was, we shot it in Pennsylvania last summer, and I was able to go for the whole shoot, and honestly, this is not, 
this is an indie film. It was not like a multi-million dollar Hollywood budget. And I was thinking, you know, there's a complicated script. There's underwater sequences. They dive for sunken treasure. So there's underwater sequences. There's a series of smuggler tunnels, caverns underneath the city. That's one of their schemes. So it's like, so you have to find tunnels under the city. They're going to have to build sets. There's um, all kinds of, you know, there's a cast of, I think there's 29 different speaking parts and zillions of different scenes. And I was thinking, how is he going to do this? This is not the kind of script, if I were producing an indie film and I wanted to do it on a budget, this is not the script that I would pick. But he had picked it. And then it wasn't, so I'm in until the day I arrived, I'm thinking, eh, is this going to be, what's going to, what is this going to be? You know, is this, plus this is, his, this is his first film he had produced. He's produced short films and educational films. That's how he makes his money, but he had not produced a feature. And I was shocked when I got there. I saw that basically he had called in every favor he had ever had in the world, <laughs> you know, every filmmaking favor. And he had very, very, very smartly gone into a town. I don't know if I should tell this story, but I will. So they went to, they were negotiating. Part of it is set in a shopping a shopping mall. So they rented a shopping mall for, for, for a week. And one of the scenes is set in a candy store. And they were negotiating with the candy store owner and they said, you know, here's the amount of money we, you know, here's the amount of money. And the candy owner said, oh, I don't know that we can pay you that much. That's an awful lot for us to pay you. And the producer said, or the production manager said, oh no, that's what we're paying you. You don't pay us anything. We rent the store from you. The point being, the town had, hadn't had a movie shot there. The last movie was Molly shot 20 years ago. And they were so eager Unlike a lot, you know, you go to Louisiana, you go to New Orleans, you go to New York, you go to Los Angeles, you go to Vancouver, the towns are rife with productions. But because he picked this out of the way town, they bent over backwards to help us. And, you know, <laughs> it, awesome. it saved him so much money. Now, oh, it was fantastic. He was so shrewd about it. And I mean, I'm big on, I mean, follow your artistic vision. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And stick to your vision and be true to all of that. But be smart about it. And he was smart about it. And that made me really like him, not just as a person, but as a businessman. I don't want to be in bed with a crazy head in the clouds, refusing to compromise on anything artiste. You know, I want somebody who gets the fucking thing, thing done, who gets the job done. And I want it to look good, but I, ultimately I want it to be produced, to be finished. And he, it's not that he made compromises. It's just that he was very, very smart about how he went about it. I've only seen the distributor pitch cut, which is not the full cut of the movie. Great cast. I really loved the way it looked, and I'm cautiously optimistic. We'll see, you know. Cool. For a book you wrote in 2007, you know, came out in 2009, it looks like. We're now a decade on. It still sounds like this could be today's teens because you could see parents today going okay well you're 15 now you really need to go make some money it sounds well, like the material might have aged well too well it is interesting you know because the book came out right during the crash right during the real estate right right during the economic crash of the late aughts and it's like it was not a good time for kids to be complaining about not having jobs because nobody had a job you know what i mean it was like out of zeitgeist and now it does feel like it is more timely, but that's the thing, you know, movies, I'm working on another project now 
And this one is maybe I hope I don't want to say I don't want to jinx anything, but it could end up in Netflix. That's the, that's sort of the, like the current current incarnation. But anyway, I've been working on this since 2009. It was first optioned by these particular producers. It was based on a play that I wrote in 1997, and it is about so it's uh, one kid, his best friend commits suicide, and. So the, our main character refuses to believe that his friend would commit suicide, and so he searches the memories, his memories of their past year together, which is what the bulk of the story is, trying to figure out why he committed suicide. And over the course of that time, even though the main character is straight, he realizes, oh, my best friend was in love with me, and I think I was in love with him too. So the point is, I'm writing about fluid sexuality and the idea, of what is love, what is sex, what is sexual attraction? This was written in 1997. It's now 2020. When I wrote it in 1997, it had a different meaning. This was part of the script, the fluid sexuality, but it was more about, you know, it was more about coming out and 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 finding refuge in in the people who know and who know your real self. And that was important in 1997 because that was what's relevant for LBGTQ 18 year old in 1997. That's less relevant. Being alone is is less likely. You know, you can go online. You know, you're not alone in 2020. But now the fluid sexuality thing is extremely relevant. It's like, mm-hmm. and that hasn't. I don't want to. Maybe I shouldn't be talking about this in, on a, on a public forum. But it's like this has not really been explored. And I feel like this, to me, is really interesting territory. And I guess I think it's partly luck that I wrote a story that is still timely. Almost. Oh my God, that's more than 20 years. But I guess I want to put, pat myself on the back a little bit in that I was dealing with, you know, people say, you know, oh, it's Gen Y and Gen Z that came up with this concept. Of, no, they didn't. We were talking about this back in the 80s and the 90s. It's always been a thing. And it is exciting that I feel like I can still contribute culturally, even though, you know, I'm older now. But no, I get these issues. I think, I hope I do. Netflix seems to think that that we, that we do. So hopefully, you know, I can share this this. In you know, in two years, two years we'll be talking about this movie, but it is it is always a challenge. I guess what I was going to say is, as writers, we're always trying to pick where culture is going, where the zeitgeist is going, and you don't want to be out of zeitgeist. But it's impossible. That's literally impossible to pick the future. All you can do is try to find the things that speak to your heart and th- that speak to you know. Try to find the specific that's also universal. Any rough timelines for Project Payday uh, when we might see it? Uh, it should it should be out. See, this is what's being negotiated now. And I know he wants a theatrical release, so knock on wood, it'll be at least a small theatrical release. On the other hand, if it's acquired by a streaming service, that's okay too because so many people see it right away. Yeah. And frankly, it's cheaper. But it should be 2020. It should be this year. Great. It is not. We don't have a final edit. It hasn't been scored. It hasn't been... Like I said, we don't even have a final product, but it should be out. And and I got a chance to, so I got the rights back to the book, which was out. It it, it was still in print, I think, but I got the rights back last year. And then I rewrote the book to coincide with the movie because a lot of you know it is, uh, however many years, fifteen years, and things have changed. I had always imagined the main character, the point of view character, is gay, but now I was able to. It was always subtext text. And it's subtext in the movie, but it's text in the book. I was able to explore, go a little deeper in the book. And again, I don't, 
there's such a rush. I know I sound like an old prude, but there's such a rush to sexualize everything. And, and I think, especially in YA, I mean, on one hand, you couldn't sexualize anything. So it's great that now we have that freedom as writers. And I applaud that. And I've read books that I think are great. Yes, explore sex, explore sexual desire. But it's also okay to explore the more reticent gay kid who it's like, well, wait a minute, I'm not ready for sex. I recognize that I will be one day, but I'm 15. And, and right now I want to hang out with my friends. And that's a scary, mister, mysterious door that I'm not ready to open. That's a perfectly valid character too. And I think that I talk to these kids all the time online, you know, who, people who read my books. And, and it's like, they're not, I remember the thing that struck me the most when I was working with gay kids was there's this idea that it's like, they all want sex, sex, sex. They all are obsessed with sex. It's like, no, my experience is they all want a boyfriend or a girlfriend. They want a relationship. And sex is important, but what the, you know, anybody can look at porn. Anybody can, you can explore those fantasies these days in a, online, but you can't have a boyfriend you know, on porn. There's no such thing as a porn boyfriend. And everybody, they want, uh, you know, the, the, the secret to life is that we all just want connection. We all just want somebody to accept us for who we are, no questions asked, that's what we're all yearning for, it's what we all want. That's what the characters in Project Payday have, but they're friends, you know, they are, they, and they recognize that they have that kind of relationship, and they don't want to move on to the next phase where suddenly that's complicated with boys and girls and relationships and sex. They recognize they will go there one day, and frankly, that's the subplot in the Otto books too, that Russell and Otto, you know, Otto has a boyfriend and Russell has a husband, and that's cool, and I explored that in earlier books, but the idea that they are friends and that they can count on each other, and I think we all want that more than anything in the world, that when things go wrong, is there somebody we can turn to? When things, you know, if we're not married, or even if we are married and things go bad with our relationship, is there somebody who will, who will always be there for us? You know, no matter what happens in our romantic life, they will always be there, and they get us, you know, on some fundamental level, they get us, they understand us, and we don't need to explain ourselves because they already know who we are. We all want that, and so I'm fascinated. I think that's a more interesting connection to me. Yeah, I think it's even more true in this online era that we live in where you don't get necessarily probably an ever true, true self online, so. Absolutely, yeah. that's a good point. I totally agree. Let's talk about your travels. So you and your husband, Michael Jensen, who has been on the show before as well, you guys have been traveling for like the last three years now. You packed it up, left Seattle, and have been on this kind of nomad adventure, living your life around the world. We love it. It's the smartest thing we've ever did. The night of the election, we were with our good friends, our best friends who are a lesbian couple. They had thrown an election party, and we had gone, and we were all excited to celebrate the first female president. And of course, Trump was elected, and we all wanted to kill ourselves. The party ended 30 minutes after it started and Michael and I were driving home and we felt like shit, like in much of the world, we just felt hopeless. We had always planned at some point that we were gonna travel the world for a while. This had always been the plan, but it was always sort of a later kind of thing that we'll, we'll, do it, we'll get around to it eventually. We turned to each other and we said, let's sell the house and leave. And it's like we, we felt so powerless and depressed and I am like a control freak when things I this is why I like plot so much. This is like why I like writing. I want to fix problems and I want to solve it. Well, when you're 
country elects an ignorant fascist racist you can't i can't there's no way i can solve that problem you know i had done what i could in the election but i could solve my problem of feeling so frustrated by getting the hell out of dodge or at least taking control of my own narrative and michael was absolutely on board and our friends thought oh yeah you're just you're not really going to leave but because we had always planned to do this anyway we both knew you know within 2 months we'd sold our house and with eight months, within eight months, we were on the road, and basically we are called digital nomads, which means we work remotely. I always wanted to do this because it felt silly. We were living in Seattle. It felt silly to be playing the Seattle Premium. Seattle is extremely expensive. It's become like, it's become like San Francisco. It's one of the most expensive cities in the country. But our income did not reflect that. Our income was the same and is the same wherever we lived. We sold the house for a lot of money because it was Seattle and we had bought it cheaply and things had gone crazy, which gave us, which gave us a cushion to experiment with. Then we left. We live in a country anywhere from one to three months. And then we move on because that's how long the visa will last. So we started in Miami, Florida. We moved to Malta in the Mediterranean. Then we lived in Italy. Then we lived in Bulgaria because of something called the Schengen zone. Schengen zone. You can only be anywhere in Europe for three months. So we had to leave. We ended up in Eastern Europe, which is outside of the Schengen zone. Had no plans to go to Eastern Europe. But friends said, hey, you know, Bulgaria is awesome. It was awesome. We took a cruise ship home. We take repositioning cruises. So we lived on a cruise ship for two months as we took a cruise ship back through the Panama Canal and back of Seattle. Then... In 2019, we left. We went into Asia. We went to Thailand. We lived in an island in Thailand. Then we lived in Vietnam, which was awesome. We loved Vietnam. We lived in rice fields right outside of Hoi An. Fantastic experience. Came home for the movie shoot in June, which was in Pennsylvania, as I said earlier. Then we continued, took another cruise ship across to Europe. We went to Switzerland. We lived in Switzerland and the Swiss Alps for the summer, which was beautiful, incredibly expensive, but beautiful. Then we went, I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm missing a couple countries. Then we went to, we went back to Eastern Europe, we went to Tbilisi, Georgia, which again was awesome. Came home, took another cruise ship home for the holidays. Now we are in Mexico City, which is also fantastic. It's funny, the State Department issued a travel alert the day before we were to come to Mexico. They said, you know, crime is up. Americans should be wary. I think they were just saying Americans shouldn't go to Mexico. And we had three or four friends here at the time and, and we thought, you know, should we be worried? And they said, you know, there are parts of the United States where you should not go. It's like you, you, you've been to Los Angeles, you, you've been to Chicago or New York. There are places, yeah. you know, that are that are sort of tough, sort of dangerous there. And that's just like Mexico. There are places in Mexico where I wouldn't go. But Mexico City itself, we're in La Condesa and Roma Norte, the near the city center. It's a stunningly beautiful city. I had no idea. It's all plazas and parks. The Mexican people are charming. My Spanish still sucks, but I'm, I'm learning. <laughs> There's nothing like immersion to get you to, to pick up a language. So I'm learning, and we're having a ball. We really, we're going to stay in Mexico, I think, uh, a couple of months. And then, depending on what happens with this Chinese virus, we, we may go back to Asia. We may not. We may just go to Colombia. We may go to South America. But the point is, we love our life. And we thought it would be really expensive. And, and in fact, our cost of living is about half what it was in Seattle. And it could be a lot cheaper if we wanted it to be, if we wanted to live in, you know, a little more frugally. We just don't deprive ourselves. And the, the other thing that's been really, really wonderful, we thought we would be lonely. We thought we would be isolated. You know, how do you get to know people? Well, because there is this digital nomad community around the world now, and because they're all awesome people, you know, it's like, <laughs> I like to say, 
nobody leaves home because they're happy with their life. Everybody leaves home because they don't quite fit in because they feel like they have a yearning for something more. So it's kind of like the island of misfit toys. Everybody's a little dorky. Everybody's a little quirky. And so are we. And the other interesting thing, we're in our 50s, early 50s. And we are, most of our friends are now in their 20s and 30s, which has been really interesting. And I, I think they think of us as peers. I know they think of us as peers. We think of them as peers. Occasionally they'll ask us, you know, advice, but for the most part, we sort of see each other as peers. So it is great to be, be around sort of this young, open-minded, positive energy. This has made me feel empowered. You know, I'm around Young people, like, we can exchange ideas. I have my perspective because I have an older perspective and they have a younger perspective and that's interesting. But I don't feel like they don't, you know, I, I don't feel like, okay, boomered by these people. I feel accepted. They're not, like, going to dismiss me because of my age and I'm not going to dismiss them. I'm not going to say, oh, millennials or, oh, you Gen Y. It feels like there's a meeting of minds. And so it has been really awesome to meet these people. And so as opposed to being isolated, we feel more connected. I mean, I'm not a, I'm an introvert, like times 50. I wanted to stay home. I want to Netflix and chill, but it's so, plus every city other than the, anything in the United States is so much more livable because everything's so walkable. Like I said, Mexico City is all these sidewalk cafes and plazas and parks and everything is, from a Western perspective, everything is cheap. So we find ourselves being so much more social it has been a reinvention that I didn't think I was capable of at my age. I didn't think I wanted to reinvent myself. And yet I have, and Michael has too, and we've been surprised by things. All of my life I thought I had work-life balance, but it wasn't until I, until I left the United States that I realized, oh, I didn't have work-life balance at all. Because it's hard to have work-life balance because everything's so goddamn expensive. You know, mm -hmm. you have to kill yourself for Michael and myself I don't want to sound judgy. I really don't. And I hope I'm not coming across that way. But for us, it has been, we were at a very low point, both politically and career-wise. And we felt very frustrated. Things had not gone our way. And so many, we had so many disappointments in our career. And now it feels like, you know, like all writing careers, you have successes and you have disappointments. Now they are put in perspective because there are so much else the rest of our lives are richer now. The more people I meet around the world, the differences are what make it fascinating. You know, it's like I love being forced to see something about myself or my country from a different point of view. The reality is we really have so much in common, you know, and we are just so much alike and we are all yearning for that connection that so many people have opened their hearts and their minds to us. And you mentioned, you know, Online, the alienation, I used to think social media was bringing people together, and I don't believe that anymore. I feel like now it is driving people apart more than it's bringing them together, and that makes me sad. That makes me very sad, because it feels like the world is coming apart, but there are, there is still this yearning for connection, and, and there are so many people, because I've experienced it. I feel like I see it every day. When I meet people in real life, it makes me feel so open-hearted and hopeful. It makes me feel optimistic about the future. So it was, for me, this was just what we needed to get out of that mindset, whatever it was, the rut that I was in. And it makes me feel like, oh God, humanity's not doomed. There are still all these wonderful people. But I'm curious what this three-year journey has done for your creativity overall. 
I wouldn't say the well had gone dry, dry, but there are certain topics, you know, I mean, Project Sweet Life, Project Payday, Payday, that is based on an experience I had. Geography Club, that's based on an experience I have. The, the later Russell books, the screenwriting, based on experiences I had in Hollywood. The well of my personal life had begun to run dry. So it has been interesting to have the well be refilled about all these other things. And now I do find myself writing about places and people that I wouldn't have felt qualified to write about before. And even now I'm not sure I feel qualified to write about, but I am, certainly I feel qualified to write about the experience of travel. And I have written uh, several screenplays about just what it's like to travel. I wrote a thriller, two people in an Airbnb. And when you meet somebody on the road, all you know about them is what they are presenting to you. Their past could be anything in the world. They could be a killer. They could be a monster. They could be a literal monster. You know, you just don't know. And you have to figure that out. And, and so I've written that from the point of view of a thriller where two people are sharing an Airbnb and they both think the other, the other has killed somebody. And the reality is even worse than that. You know, there's something else going on in the Airbnb. And I've also written about it in a more positive way. I sort of wrote a, I guess you would say it's like, Eat, Pray, Love meets Four Weddings and a Funeral and that it's the story of a woman as she travels the world as a digital nomad like myself and her path keeps crossing with another digital nomad but circumstances are never right that they can be like Four Weddings and a Funeral. And so over the course of three different countries, their paths keep crossing. So it is. it has been wonderful to be excited about and to do things, you know, that are way out of my bailiwick. But I don't, I think I'm probably ever going to write young adult again. I've written realistic YA fiction. I've written realistic YA romances. Now I want to do other stuff. Michael and I just finished writing a memoir of our first two years together. Writing a book with your husband is enormously difficult because, you know, of course, the job of a spouse is to be supportive and non-critical and the job of a co-writer is to be ultra critical and to be very judgmental. And so the two things don't go together. So we've had to hash out what it means to write together. That's been really difficult, but it's also been really fun and really interesting. It's been an interesting project. And now we're just about done and we really like the project. And, and hopefully you can tell all my enthusiasm for what we've done. And we're trying to share that with the book, try to be advocates or emissaries for this lifestyle. Um, and also just sort of tell the story of, of what has happened. Do you think the memoir will make its way out this year? We should have a draft for beta readers in a couple of months. You know, I mean, we're, we're going to edit and then we should have a draft and then, then go to our, our agents who it really depends. This one we want, this will definitely not be self-published. This feels, you know, we wrote this as a, as a big, bold mainstream memoir you know, I feel like publishers could see because this is sort of an exploding phenomenon and there haven't been a lot of memoirs by people who have done this. So it feels like I could be wrong. I've been wrong before, but then this is me trying to anticipate the zeitgeist, which is always a mistake. But the point is to get this out to publishers and then hopefully it'll be out, you know, yeah, three years from now, <laughs> right. two years from now at best. <laughs> Ironically, it is the book that I'm most proud of at this point. You know, that it'll be easy for me to publicize because I, I feel so enthusiastic about the story we're telling. Mm -hmm. So Otto has just come out. Project Payday, hopefully, is sometime yep. this year, it looks like. Anything else on the 2020 timeline to talk about? Well, hopefully, 
you know, I, I, I would love to be able to talk about this this other movie, this drama that I was talking about earlier, The Starfish Scream, and I hope that happens because that has been a wild ride and it'll be very unsatisfying if we did all this work and, and I'm, the world is never able to see it. What else am I working on? I'm working on, I'm pitching screenplays this week and next week and and I've got a I've got a, a fantasy that I'm working on too that is not ready to go out yet. But, you know, part of the problem is I'm... <laughs> I'm all over the place. I like to write so many different things, and sometimes I feel like I should just. Sometimes I think sometimes I think I should just pick a genre and stick to it for a couple of years, but I can't seem to do that. <laughs> <laughs> what is the best way for everyone to keep up with you so they know what is coming next and how some of these other projects come to fruition? Uh, my website. You can sign up for my newsletter on my website. You can follow me on social media. I generally am on Twitter more than I'm on Facebook, but you can do either. I, you could also follow Michael and I. On Instagram, which is Brent and Michael are going places. That's also our website, Brent and Michael are going places.com. And I have a policy that I will talk to anybody. I, mean, I have sort of an open I am policy. If somebody wants to chat with me, I am available. Feel free to, you can also send me an email. I don't get very many emails anymore, though. It's, it's mostly uh, through social media these days. Fantastic. We'll link to all of that in the show notes. And uh, thank you so much for coming and telling us all about these projects and about your nomad life. Well, thank you, Jeff. This week's interview transcript is brought to you by our community on Patreon. If you'd like to read the author interview for yourself, simply head on over to the show notes page for this episode at BigGayFictionPodcast.com. And thanks again to Brent for joining us this week. I've added an extra little thing in the show notes because a couple of years ago on CBS Sunday morning, Brent and Michael were on talking about their digital nomad lifestyle. And that's an interesting interview that they had. And you'll see a little bit of them out there in the field. So do you think we could be digital nomads? No, I'm a homebody. <laughs> I'm a structured homebody. I like doing my things when I'm supposed to do them where I enjoy doing them most. So uh, it's highly unlikely I would jump into the lifestyle the way those two have. Yeah, it's still really thrilling to hear about it, though. But I'm with you. I don't think I could do it either. All right, guys. I think that's going to do it for this week's show. Coming up next week in episode 228, we'll be talking with Jamie Sands, who you might know better as Jackson Knight and Drake Lamarck, their two pen names. This was a great interview. I so much enjoyed it, talking about not only theme parks, but also pirate harems. Jamie writes in so many genres. It was a really fun interview. Yeah, so we hope you'll join us next week. Until then, guys, remember, no matter where life takes you, the journey will always be sweeter when you have a book. Until next week, everyone, please keep turning those pages and keep reading. Big Gay Fiction Podcast is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. You can find more shows you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. New episodes of this show are available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. You can help support this show with a monthly pledge through Patreon. For more information about joining our community and the bonus content we deliver, check out patreon.com slash biggayfictionpodcast. I'm Kurt Graves. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.